Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Today we're going to be taking a closer look at the run for Lieutenant Governor in the state of Massachusetts. And joining today as our guest will be State Representative Dr. Tammy Gouveia, who has joined us in prior conversations. Welcome, Dr. Gouveia. Great to see you again. Hello, how are you? So we have another title to add, which is Candidate for Lieutenant Governor. Yes, very excited. Yes. This is big news this week. You know, the last time we talked, we were talking about the expenses of campaigns. And I feel you have upped it it a notch here. (laughs) Just a tiny bit. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. We'll definitely talk about money because we know it's important that we speak directly about money. But let's just go back a little bit. So this is really big news. What made you decide to throw your hat in the ring? So I firmly believe that the people of Massachusetts deserve effective and compassionate leaders. And we're not really seeing that out of the corner office under the Baker-Polito administration. Not only has the pandemic response been pretty abysmal and leaving a lot of people out in the cold where people can't get access to the vaccine, where people can't get access to the kind of testing that we need. We're also seeing an extreme erosion year after year for the past several decades, even extending before the Baker Polito administration, where we're not investing in the social safety net in the ways that we really need to be to make sure that everybody is caught and everybody has the opportunity to thrive in our state. And we just see too many families struggling desperately and barely eking by, if at all. You've really taken a stand during the pandemic for better access to the vaccine, better access to healthcare. You've stood out there with nurses. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. How in the pandemic did you start prioritizing the issues that you would stand up for and speak out about? Even before we declared a state of emergency, I wrote a very lengthy memo to the leadership of the House, as well as Governor Baker, calling for us to take immediate action to respond based on what I was seeing and learning about what was happening with the pandemic in other parts of the country. At that moment, the World Health Organization had not declared the virus a pandemic, but it was definitely of a concern. And so I was raising the flags very, very early on and right from the get-go thought, well, if I'm going to be the kind of legislator who's leaning into my public health expertise and calling for us to shut down key aspects of our economy, then we also need to make sure that we're prioritizing getting cash into people's hands so they can pay their rent, so they can keep food on their table, so that they can put gas in their car if they do need to still work. There were thousands and thousands of people who were still going to work every single day as essential workers, including our nurses, but also grocery store clerks and other people who take care of our elderly population and skilled nursing facilities. And so I filed legislation right from the get-go that would put cash benefits into the hands of people to make sure that we were centering equity and justice and fairness in our pandemic response. And it's, it's just how I've approached my career as a public health social worker, making sure that people have what they need to thrive and that people have what they need to take care of their families and to live happy lives, ones where they're constantly stressed out because they can't make ends meet. Really, housing was incredibly difficult for people to maintain. Yeah. I don't know if you feel like the way we're handling affordable housing across the state is something that you have any ideas or plans about how things could be more equitable. We've got communities that are much more affluent and communities that really struggle. It's really very interesting to think about when a wealthy suburb adds a couple units of affordable housing that can feel like a really big deal to them. And then you look at a place like Lawrence where the need is incredible. We need thousands of units of housing. 
So in looking at things from where you are now, representing a slightly smaller area to thinking about the whole state, what's in your mind about that? Yeah, you know, I really lean into my first 35 or so years on this planet where I lived in the city of Lowell. And I got into public health through housing justice and looking at lead poisoning rates among the lowest income, typically female-headed households. And in addition, because the housing stock in our cities and our gateway cities in particular are old and are at greater risk for having things like lead or asbestos or other things that make it not really the the safest housing to live in or the most humane housing to live in. So I think that government should be doing a lot more to partner with communities to make investments in land that has been sitting vacant, where people have abandoned their properties. The communities and the state should be going in and buying up that land and putting it into a land trust and then converting it into habitable, humane, affordable housing that also does not rely on fossil fuels for heating and electricity and all those other, or energy and all those other things. So I think there's tremendous opportunity that we have not harnessed And I lay that at the feet of government leaders who have not been innovative in thinking about how do we make the investments that are so critical from a sustainability perspective on so many different measures from climate sustainability, but also economic sustainability for our families and for our communities. When I think about the other issues in the pandemic, I think about the frontline workers. And I'd like to know more about how you decided to go and stand with the nurses. Yeah, absolutely. I come from a family where my grandfather was a lifelong member of the Carpenters Union. And I know in my bones that I I have been able to achieve a middle-class lifestyle because my family had those protections going back to when my grandfather was, you know, employed as a carpenter. And he was able to build a middle-class life that then he passed on to my mom and then they were able to pass it on to myself and my sister. And so I I understand the importance of unions, but particularly when it comes to our nurses and the reason why they've been striking for, you know, 106 days now, they're putting the needs of their patients at the center of the work that they do. Nurses signed up to be nurses to take care of patients, those who are the most vulnerable, the most sick, those who are dying, those who are in pain, those who need care. And for them, when I talk to them on the front lines, what they've told me is that they're barely able at St. Vincent's to give their patients the kind of care that they need. And they're definitely not able to give the kind of care that their patients really deserve, which is more attention, more frequent washing, more frequent turning of their bodies so that they can heal or totally recover from whether it's surgery or their injury or their accident or, you know, giving birth. And the nurses don't feel like they're able to give their patients the kind of care that they need. And it really intersects with public health and health because workers' rights are our health rights. And um, they really tie in with public health. And I just think it's important and it's critical for me as someone who cares so desperately about public health to make sure that I'm supporting the nurses and their right to strike and in trying to call on tenant to get back to the table to negotiate in good faith rather than calling in replacements. I mean, how insulting to the nurses that have been caring so desperately for their patients for so long. And the other thing is like, these are nurses who have been at St. Vincent's for, you know, 15, 17, 20, 35 years, they have dedicated their lives to their patients and and caring for residents in Worcester and the greater Worcester area. Another area that's been incredibly difficult during the whole pandemic has been education. Our public schools had to continue and people had different points of view. 
some people felt like there really needed to be more centralized supportive guidance earlier on. When the central guidance came in, a lot of people felt like it wasn't actually putting teachers' health first. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I I do think we could have benefited from a slightly more centralized response, but it is important to also balance that with recognizing that at the local level, there is a lot of local control and a lot of local power. And that's for very logical reasons, local districts, school committees, superintendents, they know their community best. They know what their parents need, what their families need, where their struggles might be, and where the opportunities are to meet the needs of students with various learning needs as well, right? I do think it was hard for the the administration to find their footing with that. And I think what became really frustrating was when the Baker administration wanted schools to be back to in-person learning, and then they decided to play the heavy. But they sort of were absent when people were begging and saying, we need more help. We want more guidance. We don't want you to tell us exactly what we have to do, but give us a little bit more sense of what we should be doing to make sure that we are calling people back to in-person learning, that they're doing it safely. What is the guidance that we really need around physical distancing? We know that it changed from six feet to three feet, and even that was not implemented equitably and and consistently across the state. We know that they, they decided to roll out this companion program. And I was one of the earliest, most vocal people against the companion program, because what I knew was that it meant that people who were in their 30s, accompanying somebody who was maybe in their 70s or 80s to go to a mass vaccination site, which we should never have had those in the first place, it should have all been local to get access to the vaccine. But since we had these mass vaccination sites, They needed to solve the first problem that they created by creating another problem, which is the companion program, which put people in front of our teachers and our essential workers. And so that's why I raised the alarm bells again and said, this is not the way to be doing things in terms of trying to get shots into arms of elders and the most at risk. We should have had a completely different approach. And oh, by the way, that approach had already been tried and tested and invested in. It's called our local public health departments. They were ready to go. And Baker and Polito, they were like, we're just going to have a privatized response to all different aspects of this pandemic. And that certainly included our vaccines. And so when it came to the cries for getting kids back into the classroom, I don't think we did enough as a state to prioritize the the health and vaccine needs of our teachers and our staff. And of course, you know, now our kids luckily are in a position where more of them can get vaccinated. We should see the vaccine approved for those under 12 later on in the summer, but we, we still put people's lives at risk. And there were communities of color and low-income communities who were like, we're going to stay remote because we have seen the devastating impacts and we have seen too much death in our families and our neighbors and in our community. We don't want to put any more lives at risk by sending teachers and students back into the classroom before it's really safe to do so. So I do think that that is where we left people behind is in some of the decisions that we made to keep things rolling and moving along. There's real racial disparity across the state. We see it, we saw it in the COVID numbers, we see it in housing, we see it in school budgets. As lieutenant governor, how can you help address equity? It's really a quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of leadership approach, right? 
I will be in the position to have the governor's ear, to have uh, the secretariats across all of the different sectors and, and issue areas have their ear and to be making the case for and advocating for particular policy responses that are based on putting equity at the center. And we don't, we know that that's not happening. If it had been happening, then we, those advisory committees on reopening, the advisory committees on the vaccine rollout would have looked and felt and acted completely differently than what we saw. We did not have enough communities represented, like gateway cities represented, not enough public health experts represented. There's a lot of doctors, great. Medical doctors are not public health experts. They're two completely different things and two completely different fields. And we had a lot of larger businesses on, on those advisory com committees. Not enough small business. And small business, they, they were also kicked in the teeth through this pandemic, not getting enough of the localized support that they really needed. So as Lieutenant Governor, I will be a bridge builder, just like I have throughout my whole entire career as a public health social worker, bringing people in to solve the problems that we face as a, as a state. When you're sitting in the representative seat and you work really hard on a piece of legislation, I'm thinking about the Roe Act right now, but there's lots of pieces you've worked on. And you have a governor who not only doesn't champion or support something that the majority of people in the state support, which is access to contraception, access to abortion care. You've got the majority of people in the state supporting it. You have the legislature gets together and pass something. And then the governor not only doesn't sign it and send it back to you, you send it back to him and he still won't sign it. What's that like for you? It's incredibly frustrating to know that our leaders are not listening to the people of the state of Massachusetts. It's sort of a paternalistic attitude that like, well, I know best and I'm just going to do what I, what I think is best and not really listening to the needs of our diverse families and communities across the state. It, it's frustrating that he also vetoed climate change a number of times, the climate change bill. I mean, that has huge, tremendous support. And it means that if we're not passing strong climate legislation, that we are punting a disaster to our future generations. And I can't abide that. And so I was grateful that in the legislature, we overrode those. But I think that we still do see a lot of elected officials across the state not really listening and paying attention to what people want in our state, like debt-free higher education, universal pre-K, Medicare for all, a lot of those kinds of issues. There's a groundswell of support that's just going ignored and unaddressed. Now, if elected, you're going to be looking statewide in, in a slightly different way. But also I'm thinking about the shift from 2016 to now because of the change in our federal leadership. Things seem better to me personally, better to Red Cloaks in general, but the midterms could shift things again. It's hard to know when there's going to be a backlash. So as lieutenant governor and being close to a governor, governors are meeting with governors across the country. What kinds of national issues, even in a short form, do you feel like are the ones that you would most hope to have the governor's ear on? We need definitely to pass that minimum wage, $15 minimum wage across the country. What we really need is a living wage. $15 in our state is actually not adequate, even though we did pass that here, and I'm grateful for that. We need paid family leave all across the country. We do need to move towards Medicare for all. That is just critical um, to make sure that our families are no longer struggling. And we need tax fairness. We need to be taxing the wealthy at higher rates all across all the states, but also at the federal level to make sure that we're able to make those huge investments that we need in our public transportation system, in our healthcare system, 
in our education system, in our jobs creation, and in housing. And that comes from partnerships between local communities, the business sector, state government, and federal government. Fair share moved forward in a big step last week. So what's next? How can individuals make a difference there? There's that bill, and then there's a couple other bills, too, that I think would also be in service to making sure that people are protected, that workers are protected. But to answer the uh, fair share piece, it's going to be on the ballot in 2022. It's really important that we talk to our neighbors, our family, our friends, our coworkers about why the fair share amendment, why the ballot question in 2022 is so important to creating tax fairness in our state so that we can make investments in public transportation and in our education system. Only 20,000 people will be affected by passing fair share out of the over 6 million people in our state. So it is moving us closer and closer towards a more equitable tax system. The other two bills that people can weigh in on now and support is one fair wage, which would eliminate the tipped wage, which goes back to the days of right after slavery. A number of states have already eliminated their tipped wage. And it also is really good for women who predominantly work in the service industry. I used to be a a server at the 99 restaurant when I was pregnant with my older child. So I know what it's like to rely on tips to put food on your table and to keep the lights on in your house. And um, so it puts women oftentimes in these very precarious, uncomfortable positions where they're accepting sexual harassment or uh, maltreatment so that they don't anger a customer so they can make sure that they're trying to you know, generate tips. And then the other piece of legislation is uh, wage theft. It's uh, been filed multiple times in the state legislature. We haven't quite gotten it over the finish line for whatever reason, but wage theft is happening to the tune of several million dollars in our state where workers show up. They do the hard work, particularly their laborers or their construction workers or carpenters, and they never see the pay that they earned. And we need to do something about that in our state to protect people who show up and do what they're supposed to do. And the the employers are not holding their end of the bargain. This kind of campaign, when we talked last time and Jesse Murmel was here as well in that episode, we talked about it's just more difficult for women to have the kind of capital it takes to run any campaign. So as you look at something statewide, the expenses have to go up. And I was reading someone else has thrown his hat in the ring and he's starting out with more than $200,000. So mm-hmm. what are the steps for anyone who's running? We don't endorse anybody as red cloaks, but what are the steps for someone like you who wants to run? Where does the capital come from? It comes from me sitting four or five hours a day on the phone, cold calling and asking people to invest in my campaign. And I share with them what my vision is for where we could go as a state, the need for more innovation, the need for greater investments and the things that everybody needs to thrive. And so I'm asking people to make that solid investment in our shared vision and our shared hope as a, as a commonwealth, as a civil society. This is the kind of thing that, you know, when, when you have a, an opponent who's able to lend themselves $200,000 for their campaigns, it does, it creates this inequity and in, in who's able to run, who might throw their hat in the ring in the future. I was out before he was, so it's a slightly different situation, but now other people might be thinking, wow, this is someone who could self-fund. It's not even worth me getting into the race. And that's really bad for democracy because it means that it's only a few people's ideas who are put out there rather than a slew of people who might have different ideas and different perspectives. And I don't presume to have all of the answers. I would hope that we would have more robust discussions and have more people running in these races. 
particularly because we know that Massachusetts does have among the lowest primary rate. A lot of times incumbents are not challenged at all. And it goes against what we want for a strong democracy. Um, and so money in politics is, is always an issue, always probably will be an issue, but it means that for women like me, I think one of the things that could really be helpful is, are the women realizing that our shared prosperity really comes from supporting each other, whether we're in the business world or in the uh, electoral politics world? Thank you for stepping up to run and thank you for taking time for us to fly through some different issues. We covered a lot of ground today and we would love to have you back because it's educational for our listeners to follow a campaign from beginning to end. We learned a lot the last cycle and we would love to learn with you. Absolutely. I would love to come back. Thanks, Tammy. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like more information about Dr. Guvea, you can look up her website tamiguvea.com. That's T-A-M-I-G-O-U-V-E-I-A.com. And we will be looking for other candidates who are stepping up to run for lieutenant governor or for governor so we can follow this race. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio. You can find us at bostonredcloaks.com. Thanks for listening.